What's up, everyone? Dustin Bass here with just a quick little request. If you enjoy our podcast, could you do us a huge favor and leave us a rating and a review? The reason we ask you to do that is because when we get more ratings and reviews, more people are able to find the show. So if you're enjoying the content that we're putting out, we would greatly appreciate if you helped spread the word. So leave us a rating, leave us a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening to. Thanks so much. And let's get on with the show. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we have the distinct honor of having Dr. Stephen Harden on the line. Dr. Harden, how are you doing? I'm wonderfully well. How about yourself? We are fantastic. We get the luxury, much like yourself, of living in the great state of Texas. So we're good. Uh, We have you on the show because, obviously, Texas Independence uh, anniversary is coming up. And we want to have a thorough discussion about that because here in Texas, obviously, people are proud of this state. Um, But at the same time, there are a lot of people who don't know much about the Texas Revolution. Um, And so we want to have a good, thorough conversation about that. But before we do, Dr. Harden, can you just give our audience just a brief background about yourself? Well, uh, born in 1953, just in time for the uh, Davy Crockett craze. Now, if you don't know what that was, uh, in 1954, uh, Walt Disney uh, brought out a a series of television shows uh, called Davy Crockett, uh, King of the Wild Frontier. And... uh, uh, San Angelo, Texas native Fess Parker uh, played Davy Crockett. Uh, Buddy Epson played his uh, sidekick, Georgie Russell. It was a popular culture phenomenon. Uh, kids all over the nation wore coonskin caps, had little buckskins, had little canteens, had little rifles. Uh, and it, I mean, it, it transcended the kiddos. Uh, that they even uh, produced uh, Davy Crockett uh, panties uh, for for the ladies. This was a popular nice. culture phenomenon, and so uh, I was part of that. I was part of that generation who uh, wore the coonskin caps and and whatnot. Uh, in fact, if you go on my website, uh, there's even a a photo of uh, I guess of. Uh, taken about 1957, perhaps, of me and my Davy Crockett outfit. So, uh, you know, I, 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 you know, when you, back then, history was in the air. And, uh, you know, a lot of it was filtered through uh, popular culture, but that's okay, because the, the message I got is that uh, the uh, history was important, and that people who inhabited uh, the past uh, were interesting, and we needed to know more uh, about it. So, uh, you know, and I've often said that if it if it were not for uh, Fess Parker and uh, John Wayne, uh, of course, both played Davy Crockett in different venues. Uh, uh, John Wayne being in the uh, 1960. Uh, film, epic film, The Alamo. Uh, in the second grade then. Uh, but uh, if it weren't for those uh, two men, those two performances, I probably would not be doing what I was, what I'm doing for a living now. 
Now there was a TV show on uh, on on uh, Jim Bowie, wasn't there? Uh, there there was. Uh, I it it was in the in the late fifties. Uh, yeah, it, it, Scott Forbes uh, was an English actor mm-hmm. uh, that played uh, Jim Bowie, and it had a wonderful, wonderful uh, theme song. Uh, I, I will not sing it for you. Uh, <laughs> you, you. You may thank God for that, but uh, part of the part of the refrain was Jim Bowie. Jim Bowie. He was a bold, adventuring man. <laughs> So, uh, well, I remember. Let us let us all strive to be bold, adventuring men. Yeah. Well, I remember the uh, Davy Crockett. I don't know if this was on the Fess Parker show where they would say Davy, Davy Crockett. That's the one. That's the one. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we we sang that till we drove our parents to distraction. I can only imagine. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't. That that's funny though that you mentioned that they had p- women's panties for. Uh, uh, I, I yeah. could go somewhere, but I won't. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not making that up. They really did. Yeah. Well, just uh, go somewhere, yeah, but, but I won't. I'll, okay. You know, just everyone can leave it to their imagination on that one. I think we will. Yeah, my my wife actually found some uh, vintage uh, Davy Crockett uh, fabric. Mm-hmm. From from the fifties and uh, made some pillowcases for a friend of ours who who has an Alamo room uh, and uh, they have become uh, treasured family heirlooms because you can't can't get that vintage fabric uh, much anymore. Nice. What's that singer's name? The Genesis singer. I forgot. Um, Phil Collins. Oh, Phil Collins. Phil Collins. Yeah. Phil yeah. Collins. yeah I, I I know him. He's a friend of mine. Really? Uh, what? Yeah. Yeah, he uh, actually uh, contributed uh, an essay uh, to uh, his book. Uh, he wrote a book called uh, uh, The Alamo and Beyond a Collector's Journey. And uh, what that book is, is uh, photos, primarily, uh, of, of his extensive Alamo and Texas Revolution uh, collection. He, he has collected uh, a number, I mean, hundreds we're talking about, artifacts and, and documents. It is, it is like a, a, a museum exhibit in your hand. And he wrote wow. very cogent uh, uh, text for it. And uh, yeah, he asked me to write, contribute an essay. Uh, which I was pleased to do. Uh, yeah, Phil's, Phil's a good guy. Yeah, fantastic. I know he contributed or gave his entire collection. I heard uh, on the Alamo. So uh, that's exactly right. He's he's enormously generous. Mm-hmm. Uh, Phil is. That is very cool. Um, you know, uh, obviously Phil Collins cares about the Texas Revolution, but it's... well, and and interestingly enough. Uh, why he does is the same reason uh, I do. I mean, our backgrounds are radically different. I mean, he was a young lad uh, growing up in the suburbs of London, and and yet he was watching the same Davy Crockett program I was, hmm. and uh, he he caught the bug the same way I did through through popular culture, mm-hmm. and uh, you know sometimes you never know what's what's going to uh, inspire a kid. Yeah. 
and uh, you know i'd like to i like to think that maybe some of the things i've written or some of the the, the spots that i've done uh might ignite that spark in in some future historian um well, you did for you me. Just, that, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, that makes my day. Yeah, I, I, um, I gave uh, Dustin. I had uh, extra copies of uh, the Texian Iliad. Texian Iliad, yep. and uh, I bought uh, my father-in-law one. And I've uh, recommended uh, your book. Mm-hmm. Um, we did it once on the show. Right. It was about a year ago, maybe. Yeah, I think um, we uh, before we yeah. even knew we were going to even talk to you. We were right. just we're like, you know, if you want to know about the Texas Revolution, you need to read this book. It's mm-hmm. just... And it's a really, ladies and gentlemen, it's a really good, thorough book. Um, and it has from Gonzalez all the way to San Jacinto. Um, so it's a very good book. And it gives you um, also a lot of insight on Sam Houston um, in ways that you may or may not have, have heard about. So, and uh, Dr. Harden has actually written six books, am I correct? That's correct. Right. Uh, your first book was on the Texas Rangers. Um, it, it was, yes. So what, what is it about, you know, can you give us a brief? Because I think the Texas Rangers, um, that's, that's sort of like almost myth, mythological. Um, and a lot of times probably people think when they think Texas Ranger, they think of Robert Duvall and Lonesome Dove. Or Chuck um, Norris. Don't forget <laughs> or Chuck Walker, Norris. Texas right, Ranger, right, or that. Yeah. He'll come in here. He'll beat you up. <laughs> yeah, his his uh, must his uh, beard will at least. Um, and so, what is it about the Texas Rangers, just briefly, that people should know? Well, uh, first, I suppose that they weren't always uh, a law enforcement agency. Uh, they they began life well as a uh, Indian fighting organization, primarily. Mm-hmm. They were organized in uh, 1823 uh, by Stephen F. Austin. There's documents that said I, I, I paid a, a, a company of rangers. He uses that term, hmm. rangers. And uh, rangers, as the name would suggest, were men who ranged a particular area uh, and searching for enemy forays, in, in this case, uh, uh, the Indians, uh, and uh, uh, what I tried to do in that book, I did that. I published that book with an English publishing firm hmm. uh, called uh, Osprey. And uh, yeah, we're very familiar with Osprey. Yeah, we had uh, yeah, Mark yeah. Lardis on the show. Yeah. He does a lot of okay. stuff with uh, Osprey. Well, and I've written, I've written two for Osprey. And like a lot of people, I guess a lot of us have have grown up with the Osprey publications. Uh, And uh, they are, I guess, uh, people's first introduction uh, to many uh, military history topics. And uh, I I was acutely aware that this was going to, I mean, I it wasn't possible to do an exhaustive study of, of the Texas Rangers, and I was aware of that. So I wanted uh, this to be a good introduction, uh, especially for young people. Uh, the nice thing of, about Ospreys is that they are lavishly illustrated. And uh, I have had over the years uh, a number of uh, people tell me that uh, their kids liked that book. Mm-hmm. And uh 
Uh, of course, I'm always delighted to, to hear that. And I think even now, uh, while the book is obviously dated now, uh, I think if you have a, a kiddo, uh, say, 12, 13, uh, that that would be a good first book mm-hmm. uh, on, the, on the Texas Rangers, just to, to get to get an inkling of, of, of what they, they're about. And, and it's, uh, you know, I, I, I did it from 1823 to, to 1991. So, uh, like I say, it's a bit dated now. Uh, but uh, let me tell you an interesting story about working with uh, an English publisher. Uh, in, uh, of course, you, if, you, if you write a book about Texas Rangers, you've, you've got to, you know, talk about Frank Hamer. And of course, if you talk about Frank Hamer, you you have to talk about Bonnie and Clyde and and, and why it was significant, that who they were, and 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 how he how he got them, you know. Mm-hmm. So um, I I included a, a, a very famous photo, a very oft-published photo of Bonnie Parker brandishing her sawed-off shotgun, uh, and. Uh, Clyde is standing there as if she has the drop on her. So, uh, you know, I wrote the caption, here's Bonnie Parker brandishing her sawed-off shotgun. And when the book comes out, uh, I'm very excited because I'm, uh, you know, and I'm reading through it, and I, I come to this caption. And it says, here's Bonnie Parker brandishing her sawn-off shotgun. So I immediately got on the phone with my editor and I said, hey, what is this? What is this business with a sawn off shotgun? He says, oh, yes, our editor told me that that was improper grammar. And I said, well, would you would you also have a Bronco Burster? I said, you, you've made me a laughing stock over here. Oh, wow. You know, people are going to think that I don't, you know, so – if if you do ever get that book, and mm-hmm. if you do read that caption, please don't think I don't know <laughs> that it's uh, uh, a sod. Yeah. Well, if we ever but, come uh, by, we'll have you sign that photo. Yeah, yeah, and I will. I will correct that caption <laughs> with sod. Yeah, uh, so that's just the sort of thing. And, you know, I was prepared for, you know, color with a U and that sort of thing. A lot of, uh, uh, I mean, there are notable differences between English English and American English, but I wasn't ready for a sawn off shotgun for God's (laughs) sake. So now your your second book is the Texian Iliad, which is what we, yeah. yeah. So I actually, you know, I actually wrote that one first. Oh, okay. uh, but uh, yeah, that began life as my PhD uh, dissertation at uh, at TCU. Mm-hmm. But it but it took me uh, almost ten years to to get it published. It was it was at the press for a long long time. Wow. Uh, and I tell people writing a book is easy, publishing a book is hard. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, I know um, it was a Texian. It was how do you say it? Macabre. Taxi and Macabre, yeah. Okay, you said that. That's you told me that that was your favorite book. Yeah, I mean that's my personal favorite of 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 all the books I've written. I, I think it's uh, well, it's just so uh, weird and twisted. Mm-hmm. The story, 
and and that just fell in my lap and uh yeah that's that's the one i find most fun to read and uh and right now i think you have one that's coming out well i've had i have one that that has just been published uh the lust for glory correct well no there's been one since then uh and we can talk about lust for glory, but but the one that's brand new is, uh, and I and I say it's my book. It's not my book, but I, I edited the book. It, it it's a book called Houston Displayed, or Who Won the Battle of San Jacinto. And that book was or pamphlet really. It was a thirty-eight page pamphlet uh, written by Robert Coleman, who was one of Houston's uh, aides the camp during the uh, San Jacinto campaign. Hmm. And uh, he published this uh, pamphlet in uh, late January, early February of 1837, in which uh, he uh, criticized Houston's uh, generalship, uh, Houston's character, uh, Houston's fashion choices, Houston's horse. <laughs> I mean, anything. I mean, he he couldn't stand the man, and uh, it, it you know. So at any rate, this it, this is a rare but important early uh, Texas uh, imprint uh, that had been out of print for uh, fifty six years. So I'm delighted to, and I and I contributed a a new introduction that place both Coleman and the pamphlet in, in context. And for a 38-page uh, pamphlet, I included 139 <laughs> annotations that uh, in, informed the text. So I'm very, I'm very uh, pleased. That, that is the 13th in the uh, Library of Texas uh, series uh, published by the Gallier Library at SMU. Uh, it's a beautiful book, and I couldn't be more pleased with it. And uh, yeah, I, I uh, that that's the newest one. Okay, awesome. So, Doctor Arden, from your perspective, why should Americans in general um, care about the Texas Revolution? Well, they need to understand that the settlement of Anglo. Texans, Anglo-Americans, in Mexican Texas uh, from, uh, say, 1821 to, to 1836 is an important chapter in American westward expansion. And they need to understand that the Texas Revolution is an important link in a, in a series of events that's going to lead to the Mexican War, to the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, and the acquisition of what is now the American Southwest. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's all it's all part of of that process. Um, so you say 1821 to 1836 but what if so there was the the relationship between us and, and mexico because you know texas was part of mexico uh it was during indeed that, during that time well actually moses austin made his uh deal with spain uh but uh, by the time well he he got the grant 
mm-hmm. almost immediately died, passed the enterprise on to his son, Stephen Fuller Austin. Uh, and by the time he arrived, uh, the Me- Mexicans had declared their independence. So <laughs> he, he comes in and, and finds out that the people that dad made the deal with uh, have been ousted and make sure that that the new the new group would would honor the the contract uh, he has to travel all the way uh, to, to Mexico City and and make his case uh, again and and ultimately the new uh, Mexican government in Mexico City uh, not only honors uh, the agreement that the Spaniards uh, had agreed to but sweetened the deal. So uh, he's able to travel back to Texas and tell his colonists, okay, it's cool. Uh, you know, they say, you know, we can stay here. But it, uh, you know, it, it could have gone a very different way. Now, I know that um, in 1821, there was approximately 31 Indian tribes in, uh, in Texas. Um, you had about 40,000 Indians Maybe, I think they said around 2,000 Tejanos were left, and they were living mostly around San Antonio and uh, modern-day Goliad, and I think some in Nacogdoches. Yes, there were, there were three clusters mm-hmm. of Tejano settlement, quite right, uh, San Antonio de Bear, uh, the Victoria Goliad area. And right, way up in the Piney Woods, uh, there were enclaves of Tejanos living up there, widely separated uh, in uh, in Nacogdoches. But uh, yeah, uh, not not very many, uh, and and very marginalized, uh, and cut off from the mainstreams of uh, of Mexican culture uh, and society. Yeah, I know that the, now they're really. Mexico did not. Mexico was constant turmoil. You had the uh, the conservative Spaniards versus the liberal. Um, you had the uh, Indians and the mixed races, and no, you know Texas was largely ignored, and there was no infrastructure. There was no commercial. You know there, there were no commercial links, no roads, and from my from what I gathered, when the Anglos started settling in, they were doing their business with the United States, not with Mexico. Well, they were. They were. and 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 that is perhaps only natural that that they would have done so. Uh, the The city of New Orleans is uh, is vitally important uh, to the early Texas of history uh, because almost everything, it came came through New Orleans, and uh, there was a lot of traffic between uh, uh, New Orleans and, and uh, uh, mostly Brazoria, but other other Texas ports as well. Now, what if you know? What if Mexico had invested not only in infrastructure, but um, they were more productive in the in providing commercial links uh, on, along the Gulf Coast to Tampico and Veracruz? Because uh, I know that that yes. was one of the complaints mm-hmm. of the Anglos. They're like, you're not providing anything for us. You you tell us that you like the idea, but you don't do anything about it. So we're having to do all our business with New Orleans, Philly, and New York. So um, what if Well, Mexico... that really, you know, well, it, 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 that hasn't changed. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if one travels in, in Mexico... 
uh, now. And uh, you, what you find is, is that the closer you, you get to Mexico City, uh, the nicer it is. Uh, and by the time you get up to the northern border, uh, Mexico City has precious little influence. And, and, and now that the drug cartels are, uh, you know, are running things, uh, even, even, even less. Uh, and that was part of, of the problem, is that uh, Mexico as a nation, and, and, and we need to remind people of this, that, that Mexico, Mexicans secured their independence in 18, 1821. So 1821 is for Mexico, what 1776 is for the United States. Uh, but uh, Mexico, all during this period, is a country that's trying to find its footing. They're trying to establish an identity. And it's, it's unclear because there's, there's a big debate on what sort of country Mexico should be. What it produces is a highly inefficient government. And I, my students ask me about this. They say, well, why did, did our revolution go so well? And, 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 and why did theirs go so poorly? Why, why can't Mexico get its act together? And I, rem, and I remind them, I said, look, uh, Mexico never had the luxury of a period of salutary neglect. Now, when American historians talk about the period of, of, of salutary neglect, that's a period of uh, uh, colonization prior to the French and Indian War, where uh, Great Britain, in essence, left us alone. says, look, as long as the cheap raw materials come across the Atlantic, we don't really care what you're doing, you know, just just make sure that the cheap raw materials get over here. And so while the Brits weren't looking, what we did is developed our own representative institutions. And we had the luxury of having an extended period of time uh, wherein those representative institutions could evolve naturally and organically. So by the time 1776 rolled around, we were already, we had considerable experience in governing ourselves because we had been doing that on a state and local or a colony and local level for some time. What the Mexicans had to do is go from absolute despotism to self-rule and and there were there were no traditions for that uh, same thing with the french you know they tried to go from an absolute monarchy to a republican form of government and it didn't work um, <laughs> what you end up with is the reign of terror 
And we've, we've seen this in the Middle East, you know, you know, the, the Iraqis, you know, tried to, to go from Saddam Hussein to, to self-government. It didn't work. It, 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 and that's what Americans need to remember is, is how fortunate we are that our experience worked as, as well as it did. And even, even we had struggled with the Articles of Confederation before we finally got it right in, in 1787 with, with that remarkable constitution. But if we hadn't been blessed, and in a, in a, in a, I, I don't shy away from that term because I, 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 I do see some evidence of, of, of divine intervention here. I mean, if, if, if we didn't have those particular people, I mean, if we hadn't had James Madison, if we hadn't had Benjamin Franklin, if we hadn't had Alexander Hamilton, and, and, and for God's sakes, if we hadn't, if, if George Washington hadn't deigned to show up, there never would have been a constitutional convention in, in Philadelphia in 1787. So, you know, we, we have been so lucky. We have been so blessed. Uh, and uh, we, we sometimes in our arrogance think, well, why, why can't everybody pull this off? Well, not everybody is as blessed as, as we've been. And I know well, I know that um, I mean they had a series of uh, rebellions, um, changing of the guard. There was a struggle between the, um, like I said, the conservative um, royalists. You had the Federalists that uh, I, I know that Mex- the Mexican Empire, when it first formed, stretched from yeah. Oregon all the way to Panama. Yeah. And uh, several countries, Nicaragua, Guatemala, Honduras, they all left Costa Rica, formed their own countries. Yeah, they sure and, did. Uh, uh, if, in fact, uh, Yucatan was uh-huh. declared its independence uh, for a while. Mm-hmm. They came back into the fold. But, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it, uh, again, it's, uh, they're, they're trying to define themselves. Now, here's an interesting statistic. And, and I don't think most people are aware of this. I wasn't until fairly recently. Some scholars speculate that uh, Mexico had illiteracy rates approaching 98%. So, you you, you know, you talk, you hear people t- today talk about the 1%. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've, you've got 1% or 2% of, of the nation who can even read. And obviously, and you, you, you have a tradition of elitism anyway, mm-hmm. and you, you have some uh, idealistic Mexicans who uh, believe in a republican form of government, power to the people, let the people decide. You know. Slowly, it dawns on them that the vast majority of the Mexican population have no concept of what that means, what that would entail. You you also have uh, inside Mexico regions, and as people did in the United States, you have people identify with their region more 
than the, the nation state at, at large. Uh, La Patria Chica, they called it, the, the, the little homeland. And so when people start talking in terms of, of a, a nation state, uh, many of these, uh, and I don't mean this as condescendingly as, as it's probably going to sound, but these these peasants, these illiterate peasants, they, they, you know, when you start talking about constitutions and the rights of man and John Locke, you, they, they just kind of look at you like, what are, what are you talking about? Yeah. So it, 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 it dawns. And and of course here north of the Rio Grande we were we are taught that the centralists are the bad guys, but but the more I read, uh, the more the more sympathy I I have with with these centralists, who who you know they they try it and you know the, the Constitution of 1824 is a federalist constitution. The, the lion's share of the paper, uh, uh, lion's share of the of the power resides at the state and local level, and by 1834-35, it's it's just apparent to a lot of people, including Antonio Lopez de Santana. You know, may have been a good idea, but it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. I'm sorry. We we we've tried it, and the vast majority of of the Mexican people just just aren't ready for this form of government. And and so what you need is is a highly centralized government in Mexico City that can bring order out of chaos and and and, and impose. Right, impose a, a a a societal structure on on the Mexican people. Uh, but that that led to revolts, including Texas. Oh, it did in eighteen thirty-five, and, and yes, it I, it Tabasco, uh, Yucatan, uh, uh, Zacatecas, Coahuila, uh, uh, and yeah, and, and and what Americans and Texans, a lot of Texans don't. Uh, understand this is that what we call the texas revolution was but a theater of a much wider mexican civil war uh centralism versus federalism and uh texas was a a a federalist uh bastion and uh the the tejanos uh, that that joined their uh, Anglo-American neighbors. Uh, well, they were distant neighbors, but uh, they were simpatico with them because they were first Federalist Mexicans. And uh, most of them were fighting for a Federalist Mexico. Now, this this whole idea of the Mexican Revolution and the, and the Texas Revolution. Uh, when the war started, when the conflict started at the Battle of Gonzales, the come and take it fight, October 2nd, 1835, uh, nobody, it, it wasn't a revolution. Nobody was talking about changing governments. 
Nobody was using the I word, independence. Nobody. This was a struggle to retain the Federalist Constitution of 1824. Now, by that was in October. And by January of 1836, just a a couple of months different, almost everybody in Texas had come to the conclusion that, that they had to declare independence. And all of those delegates that uh, showed up at at Washington in uh, early March of 1836, every one of those delegates knew that they were going there to declare independence. I mean, that wasn't even an issue for debate. They met on March 1st. They called it to order and they declared independence the next day. Now, when you say... um... Washington, you obviously mean Washington on the Brazos, correct? Well, yes and no. That's what we call it today. But nobody called it Washington on Brazos until after the Civil War. Uh, At the time, uh, people called it the town of Washington. But 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 yeah, it's it's what we call. Uh, Washington on the Brazos. So, Dr. Arden, I do want to um, sort of not pick apart what you're saying, but I've never thought of it in that aspect of the, because Alan and I have had this conversation before, actually, I think it was early this year or late last year, about the uh, Mexican Constitution and how it mirrored, you know, almost precisely as the American Constitution. And you know, we had thought, you know, it's a great idea. Like this is this is the the way to do it. We never really put it into perspective, or I've never put it into perspective, coming from um, Centralista's, you know, point of view. Of yeah. look, we know that this is going. When we, you know, g- get rid of the constitution, go to a centralist uh, government. This is going to cause rebellions. It's going to cause some some uproar. We will fight those battles. We will. We would rather fight those, and tell me if this is right or wrong in thinking, we would rather fight those little battles than see a complete com- collapse of the entire country. Is that You're talking about the United it? States, though, correct? No, I'm talking about Mexico. In Mexico. Yeah. Okay. Would that be accurate? Well, a couple of things. And, and I used to think that, too, because that's what we're told, that the Mexican Constitution of 1824 is, is patterned after our constitution, that they looked for the, the, the Philadelphia Charter as a template, a, a model. And I think that's true, but I also think that that wasn't the only influence. And what I've come to understand is that our constitution was just one of the influences on the Federalist Constitution of 1824, another big influence was the Spanish Constitution of Cadiz that uh, was written during the time of the French occupation uh, during the Napoleonic Wars. By uh, Spanish standards, it was a, a highly liberal uh, constitution. And so uh, the Constitution 
of, of 1824 is a uniquely Mexican document. But, uh, you know, there, are, there were enough similarities that uh, American colonists could say and, and rationalize in, 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 in some measure that, well, it's okay because it's the Republic of Mexico. And it may not be just like uh, the Constitution that we're accustomed to, but it's close enough not to be a deal killer. Now, I know it, it, the Catholic Church was the state religion. It absolutely was. So that is a huge difference between the two constitutions. You don't have freedom of religion. Uh, and to a much lesser degree, uh, you don't even have freedom of speech. Uh, so there were some uh, notable notable differences. So I, I think it's kind of easy. And I, and I think... Uh, traditional Texas histories in, in a way to explain something that's innately complicated uh, have said, well, you know, the Mexican Constitution was a lot like ours. Well, in some ways, yes. In many other ways, no. So that's a little too pat, I think. But uh, still, it, it, you know, it, it, was a constitution that most Anglo-immigrants could live with. Do you think that the like the Mexican government, when they did away with the constitution, turned it into a centralist government, that they were uh, fine with dealing with rebellions and some fights instead of, as they saw it, maybe the whole country collapsing because it's an, it, a federalist government and, and that, like you said, 98% illiteracy rate like it would just well i think i i, I think uh, santana and the centralist were probably genuinely surprised at the extent of the backlash uh but i also think it was they were encouraged because uh, they 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 put down that resistance pretty easily mm -hmm. and 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 here's something significant Santana did not overthrow the Constitution of 1824 until he had the federal army on his side. So if, if you have the army and the church backing your play, uh, that gives you, at least in, in, in Mexico in, in 1834, 1835, that gives you enormous uh, moral clout. I mean, let's let's face it; they for, for all they 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 pulled it off in Zacatecas. They pulled it off in, in Coahuila. The only place they didn't pull it off uh, was in Texas, and they came awfully close to to pulling it off here. So, I mean, the centralists had a pretty good track record. And, uh, you know, after San Jacinto, uh, all, all those soldados marched back to a centralist Mexico. I was going to ask you real quick about the, uh, I think it's called the Hombres de Bien. 
Yeah. Okay. Now, Santa Anna, he helped overthrow the emperor, and he was working with the liberals, <laughs> but then he himself became a centralist. Yeah. So, I mean, what uh, what happened there? Oh, That's... man. What, what happened there? Yeah. Uh, hard to say, uh, really, to know what is going on behind uh, Santana's eyeballs. I and other people who have looked at this conclude that that man really had no deep-seated political principles. Mm -hmm. Uh, He was an opportunist. And yes, he rose to power as a liberal, as a federalist. Was he sincere? Well, during the time he was a federalist, it it was popular to be a a, a federalist. So he he, he said what people wanted to hear. But once he, he got in power, he asked himself the question, okay, what do I have to do to stay in power? He says, to stay in power, I have to get the church and the military on my side. But to do that, I'm going to have to become a centralist. So he said, okay, now I'm a centralist. And, and, and made a deal, made, a, cut, made a, a, a devil's bargain with the church and, uh, and the military. And they did back his play when he said, well, you know what? We're, we're not, we're not going to play by these rules anymore. We're not, we're not going to abide by the Constitution of 1824. And, of course, uh, a lot of people, you know, said, the hell you say, we're, we're going to fight you on that. He says, well, go ahead and fight me. I've got the army, and you've got a bunch of uh, inefficient militias. And, uh, you know, Zacatecas was a, was a, a bloodbath, and, and those militias were no match for the national army. And, and again, uh, we have been taught up here in Texas that uh, the Mexican army wasn't very good. Well, uh, some units in the Mexican army, the permanentes, the the permanent regular forces, were excellent. Uh, You had other units, the activos. This would be like activated National Guard units. Uh, And and, uh, some of them were better than others, but... uh, and you, you had the recruits. Now, they weren't very good. But, uh, you know, it just, it it, uh, it depended what unit you ran into. I mean, you look at, at, at how, the, how the Mexican soldados fought at the Alamo, and, uh, you know, you says, well, they had the numbers. No, but, you know, they were good, too. You know, I, I I I think a lot of times we Texans are are are, are sort of dismissive of uh, the Mexican army. Uh, I think they did remarkably fine, John. I'm uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to fast forward a bit because um, okay. we're going to skip so much the details of the war itself. Um, I would invite people to purchase the Texian Iliad, and it goes into great detail about the. The initial capture of San Antonio, 
Um, yeah. Jim, Jim Bowie was one of them. And uh, was it Milby? Someone, the leader was killed, shot in the head. Was it Milby? Uh, Milam. Milam. Ben Milam. Okay, Ben, ben Milam. Milam. Yeah. So then uh, Santa Anna. And, and I saw the Alamo movie uh, with uh, Billy Bob Thornton, in which you were a consultant in that. And in the beginning, it shows Santa Anna wiping out parts of the rebellion that were not in Texas. So Santa... No, now that was that was supposed to represent Zacatecas. Oh, is that, that what that was? Yeah, that scene where, yeah, where okay. he's executed. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's what that was supposed to represent. And and people who who don't know about the rape of Zacatecas probably wouldn't make that connection, but that's what that's supposed to be. Okay. So Santa Ana marches into Texas. He splits his army with uh, Urea. And and uh, he goes to San Antonio. There's a 13-day siege at the Alamo. That's correct. Um, what happened to Davy Crockett? What really happened to Davy Crockett? Did he surrender? Did he uh, did he die fighting like in the uh, John Wayne movie? Was he captured? Um, my understanding is that the Mexicans there said he was captured. But you know what they say about yeah. the winners tell the history. Well, they do. Uh, but But if you look at the... Uh, sources and and again let's remind people that this is what historians do we look at the documents we look at the the, the record it's it's history is not what we wish had happened or we it's it's what we can document happened and the best evidence we have and, and there's considerable evidence, is that uh, David Crockett uh, was one of six or seven uh, defenders who, who survived the fighting. Now, it's, it's interesting that none, none of the Mexican sources used the word surrender. Uh, did these men surrender or were, were they just overwhelmed? It, that's not, we don't really know. What we do know is that they were alive uh, after the fighting had stopped. Uh, they uh, fell into uh, the hands of General Manuel Castrion and when Santana entered uh, the the compound. Uh, he brought these men before Santana. He says, "Your Excellency, I I bring you these these prisoners." And indignantly, Santana said, "Look, I told you I didn't want any prisoners. I told you not to take any prisoners." And Castrian said, "Well, these men are are unarmed. They're defenseless. I I beg you, you know, let's let's spare them." He said, nah, we need to kill him. And he said, do it. Do it now. And soldiers, honorable soldiers, who had just fought the battle, were gobsmacked. They, they said, well, you know, we're just not going to kill these poor guys in, in, in cold blood. And it was, uh, it was uh, Santana's uh, staff officers, uh, staff lackeys, who had not been in the battle themselves, who unsheathed their swords for the first time 
And according to, to witnesses, uh, including uh, uh, Jose Enrique de la Pena, uh, hacked these guys to death. And uh, Pena observed that uh, these unfortunates died moaning, but without humiliating themselves before their torturers. So it, uh, and I, I don't shy away from using the word uh, because I, this was not an execution. Because by definition, an execution is a legal process. It, you're, you're executing the order of a court, right? Uh, that's not what happened here. It, there was no trial. These, you know, uh, one one of the one one of the requirements of an execution is that the condemned has to know he's being executed. Uh, these men didn't know that. Uh, they were, you know. So, uh, like I say, I don't shy away. Uh, Santana had them murdered, and uh, it does seem the best evidence uh, does seem that that Crockett was was one of the the six or seven. Uh, he's he's identified as such by by Mexican witnesses whose uh, credibility is not really in question. Uh, back during the nineties, there there was a, uh, a an assertion that uh, Pena may have been a forgery, but uh, that's that's been addressed. Uh, and uh, I mean, I'm not. I'm not saying those questions should have should not have been answered. That you don't question primary documents, but uh, all of those questions have been uh, asked, and at least to my satisfaction, uh, answered. So I I see, and certainly uh, this is the version I use in Iliad that that Crockett was uh, was taken. And uh, and I don't use the term executed. I use the term murdered. Uh, he was killed uh, uh, after the fighting. So yeah, that's that, that's what the documents suggest. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we hope that you enjoyed part one of our discussion with Dr. Stephen Harden on the Texas Revolution. Uh, part two is actually going to come out tomorrow, April twenty first. So. Uh, we hope that you join us for that conversation as well. Alan, how did you, what do you, what do you think about this whole conversation that we just got through with? Well, number one, I, I read his book uh, back in the 90s when it came out, and uh, I, I just thought it was a fantastic book. I never, ever dreamed that I would actually speak with him, but having had the chance to talk with him and, and get his viewpoint, when, with all these years since the book came out, totally changed the way I look at the the Texas Revolution. Mm -hmm. he, he's, he told us things that I didn't even know yeah. about. I mean, we're taught a certain thing, and he's saying, well, you know, that's that's not exactly true. Right. So I, I feel like we uh, were given just incredible information that uh, hasn't been taught, we, and I really do hope he's, he re rewrites the book and comes out with a second edition. Yeah, that would be great. Now, one thing our audience has to understand is, is that uh, when they redid the movie The Alamo uh, with Billy Bob Thornton and Dennis Quaid, he was one of the consultants. And this came out about 15 years ago, 16 years ago. Um, so, I mean, if you want to know about 
Texian history or Texan history, he is the he go-to is the guy. guy. To go to. Yeah. So yeah, like we said, he has uh, six books available. You can go purchase those uh, and visit his website, StephenLHarden.com. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that brings us to the end of part one. Alan, where can people find us to be our best friends? They can find us on Facebook, Twitter. Instagram and YouTube. YouTube. We also have our own website. W- yes, it is. It's incredible, incredible, huge. <laughs> huge. It's the most wonderful thing you'll ever see. Yeah. www.thesonsofhistory.com. All right. Well, that brings our part one to a close. Tomorrow, remember, will be second part on the Texas Revolution, which commemorates the Battle of San Jacinto or... San Jacinto. How did he say it? it he calls matter. it San Jacinto, but yeah. considering we are the victors, we will call it San Jacinto. <laughs> That's right. We'll call it what we want. Yes. All right. It's a Hoyas occasion. <laughs> I don't even know what you mean. Joyous. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Wow. Okay. That was good. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.